News, notes, and Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch on the way, a swing and a foul. Left field, way back, Blue Jays win it! The Blue Jays are World Series champions as Joe Carter hits a three-run home run in the ninth inning in the Blue Jays. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, Column is Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 28th. It's show number 20 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great show for you with our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. And we'll have our weekly talk with Todd, featuring Todd Zola, discussing how the fantasy baseball industry sometimes lags behind in recognizing changes and trends, as well as the differences between strategies and gimmicks, and more. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler talks about a fortuitous blunder. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Miguel Cabrera is getting even richer. We gotta talk some baseball. Sources all over the place are saying Detroit slugger Miguel Cabrera will soon sign a 10-year contract extension with the Tigers for somewhere around 300 million bucks. That's around 30 million balloons per season if you're keeping score at home. Now, I've had Cabrera on some of my teams, and he's always been a great hitter. But I'll tell you something else about it. My league has a $5 per year rule on contract extensions. And I can tell you, I wouldn't give Miguel Cabrera a $50 long-term deal in rotisserie, and here's why. First, Cabrera will turn 31 a few weeks after opening day this year. The extension covers the two years remaining on his current deal, plus another eight. So the last season will be in 2023. In April of that year, Miguel Cabrera will turn 40. And 40-year-old sluggers don't usually do too well. In fact, of the 10 batters that BaseballReference.com says are most similar to Miguel Cabrera, only one of them reached 40 as any kind of effective ball player, and that was Moises Alou. And you'll remember his numbers, decent ball player, not 30 million bucks worth. Albert Bell was done at 33, Chuck Klein, 35. Lance Berkman had a good season at 35, but really he was pretty much done at 32. Johnny Mize got all the way to 38. Juan Gonzalez, just 33. Larry Walker was 38 when he had his last good year. Dick Allen was 35. The great Joe DiMaggio, 36 when he hung him up. And for me, the most pointed example is Magli Ordonez, not because of his performance level, but because of his body type. Miggy's body type is not encouraging. Not many stocky guys get more agile, athletic, and limber as they age. Believe me, I know. This looks like a bad deal for the Tigers, but a good one for Miguel Cabrera, and a great one for Mike Trout. We always have a great deal for you here at Baseball HQ Radio's Friday News and Notes edition. We'll open with our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Going to be ready, ready for the start of the season. 
Yeah, it's just a few days away. Um, a lot of people are going to be doing their drafts this weekend, one of the most exciting times of the year. And uh, now's the time to be looking for those Maybe not necessarily so much unexpected bargains, but there are certainly some players out there who are going to have good, solid track records that you might be able to get a little bit cheaper than people expect because they're looking for a regression that's really not going to happen or they're looking for a excuse not to draft a guy. And one of those guys seems to be almost every year, Brandon Phillips, Cincinnati second baseman. He's a $20 machine, and yet a lot of times people don't believe it. And last year he was even more. You know, Brandon Phillips is, uh, he doesn't get a lot of love at this time of the year, but still may may be the best second baseman in the National League. And you keep waiting for the guy to fall off the table and, and suddenly not do anything. But you look back over the last few years, and Brandon Phillips has been very, very consistent. Slow fade in his skills, yeah. But, you know, here's a guy that has hit 18 home runs uh, very consistently over the last few seasons. A um, uh about the only thing we see really fading with Brandon Phillips is his speed. I wouldn't count on double-digit stolen bases anymore. And we see a straight decline in his speed index. So he's certainly not as fast as he used to be. But here's a guy who's going to hit in the middle of the Cincinnati lineup. He's got decent power. He's going to probably get you, could get you 90 RBI from the second-place position. Brandon Phillips is certainly a guy to, to watch. He's got a good, solid contact rate. Uh... You know, Brandon Phillips is a guy that you certainly don't want to ignore at the draft table. Don't overpay for him, but my guess is he's going to be undervalued in most drafts. Well, Jeff Tomich in his facts and flukes looked at Phillips and came came to those conclusions. Uh, the skills are really remarkable when you look at the list. Home run per fly ball rate, exactly 10%, three out of the last four years, 11% in the outlier year. Uh, home runs, 18, 18, 18, 18, can't get more consistent than that. I am a little concerned, though, Nick, when I look at his power index, 104 in 2011, so just above league average, and then the last two years, 90, then 85 last year, and yet he's still getting these home runs. At what point do you start being a little concerned that the power index, if it continues to decline, how does he keep producing home runs? Well, you know, if you look back at Brandon Phillips' power index, it's never been huge. I mean, Brandon Phillips' power index, going all the way back, the highest power index of his career was when he had 31 at-bats in 2002, and that was 116. Otherwise, you've got a lot of power indices in the uh, between uh, about 85 and 110. So uh, it, it's not as though this is changing for Brandon Phillips. It's something that's been there throughout his career, and he's managed to produce about the same number of home runs every year. And certainly he's helped by the ballpark that he's in. Which, which I think is a home park, certainly uh, Great American Park helps to inflate those home runs a little yeah. bit. But that's where he plays, and, and that's what he's going to get. The other thing about Brandon Phillips is he stays in the lineup. Look back at those at-bats, and here's a guy that's gotten five to 600 at-bats every year since 2006. And that certainly helps with every counting stat that, we, that, that means anything. Yeah, his at-bats totaled the last four years all over 600, except for 2012 when he was at 580, which is still darn good. Uh, the one maybe fly in the ointment here, too, is um, last year when he was driving in all those runs, he had Joey Votto in front of him, maybe the best on-base percentage guy in baseball, and Shin Su Chu is no slouch either at the top of the order. That's a lot of ducks on the pond to drive in. Chu will be gone this year. Of course, he's in Texas, and uh, the lineup will be a little different, so maybe we should temper our expectations on RBI. But I know Baseball HQ is projecting another 18 home runs. Uh, why not, right? And 90 RBIs. Yeah, so, you know, it's one of those things that when you uh, – so the RBIs dropped down to 80. You know, that's, that's still very, very good coming out of a second-base position. So Brandon Phillips is a guy to certainly keep your eye on and not ignore at the draft table. 
the HQ projection for $20. Uh, you have a very good chance of getting that $20 worth of production for a lot less than $20 worth of money. Uh, Jeff Tomich, in his Facts and Flukes column, also looked at Kyle Loesch, right-handed pitcher in Milwaukee. Now, Kyle Loesch has been around, it seems, since uh, Yogi Berra was playing. Of course, that's not the case, but boy, Kyle Loesch has been another very consistent performer. He has, especially the last the last three seasons. I, You know, you look at Kyle Loesch and you think back to 2010 where he had a 6.55 ERA, and is and here's a guy that if you look at his XERA, even the last three seasons, 4.09, 4.02, that's what you get, right? Well, no. In 2011, a 3.39 ERA. In 2012, 2.86. 2013, 3.35. And you've got to start saying, here's a guy who's who's outperforming his XERA every single season. Again, not a very sexy kind of guy to look at because he doesn't strike out a whole lot. But pinpoint control over the last couple of seasons uh, a, a decent strikeout rate between five and six. Uh, and so Kyle Loesch is one of those guys that at his age, at age 35, I think we'd have to say he knows how to pitch uh, and knows how to get some guys out. And, and so that's that makes a difference. So Kyle Loesch is another guy not to ignore, I think, at the draft table. Uh, Matt Cedarholm every year does, a, does an article on an all-value team and guys you can get well under their uh, their expected value and Kyle Loesch is one of those. You can probably pick him up in a, in a draft lead for two or three bucks, and he may produce ten. And it, and, and then in 2012, actually a twenty-six dollar value. You know, huge huge potential for profit. I think with Kyle Loesch because people are undervaluing him. Nick, the first thing I always look at in a pitcher, I know most people look at strikeout rate. I look at the command ratio, strikeouts to walks. And anything over three starts to get my attention among starters a little higher for relievers because that is really getting the job done. And there's two ways to do that. You can have a very high strikeout rate or a very low walk rate or some combination thereof. And you mentioned that Kyle Loesch's uh, dominance rate, around six strikeouts per nine innings, nothing special. It's not a disqualifier, certainly. But look at these control rates for the last three years. Two walks per nine innings in 11, and then 1.6 walks per nine innings in 2012 and 2013. That means no free passes. It's going to help your whip. And this is how I think, when I look at the expected ERAs all around four, as you point out, and yet his ERAs are 70 to 100 points below that, and ordinarily you'd say this is a cause for concern, but after it happens three years in a row, you have to start wondering, is there a skill here that we need to take account for. Yeah, I think absolutely. And you're, you're, you're absolutely right about that command ratio. I mean, that is extremely important. Uh, and with a guy like Loesch, it's, it's a matter of command, being able to locate his pitches and get the ball over the plate. And as uh, as Jeff Tomich pointed out, he's using five pitches and he can control them all, which is a huge advantage for a starting pitcher because he gets them deeper into games before he has to start repeating himself and, and giving hitters uh, a better chance at hitting something that they've already seen. Uh, he's a $12 projected pitcher, and like you said, maybe two or three bucks at the table. Gotta like a $10 profit. Uh, Steve Nickrand uh, wrote a column in his Starting Pitchers Buyer's Guide about spring training takeaways, young pitchers who did well in spring training, and one of those was uh, T- Taylor Jordan in Washington. You know, Taylor Jordan, if you look at the, at the, if you look at the ERA and the whip and you go 4.80 ERA and 1.33 whip in the spring, and that's not so good. But in 15 innings, this guy has a 10.8 dom rate, 0.6 control. So excellent control, a lot of strikeouts, and a ton of ground balls. I mean, a ground ball rate that's getting up in the in the high 50s. So Taylor Jordan looks like the kind of player who could have a nice kind of breakout season. 
He's another one who doesn't have a huge dom rate, but but excellent control. And at this point, with the injury to Doug Fister, he's going to start the season in the rotation, still competing for that number five spot. So I think worth the speculation early on. Discussion was Tanner Rourke versus Taylor Jordan for that fifth spot. As you mentioned, Fister will be out at least for a while, which kind of makes room for both of these guys. But somebody in the comments section after Stevens column asked about Rourke or Jordan who's better for the long term and Steven said don't worry about the rotation coming out of spring training put your money on Jordan to be more valuable in 2014 even though Tanner Rourke is also a solid speculation he also says in the article Taylor Jordan is one of those guys who's the best end game speculations around right I think absolutely I mean there's there are real skills here that can turn him into a, uh, a dynamite kind of starting pitcher who will, will uh, surprise everyone in terms of his production. Well, anybody who's getting 11 strikeouts per nine and 55% ground balls should get everybody's attention because th- those are the kind of numbers that are really going to open your eyes. Of course, it's spring training. Of course, some of the batters weren't major league caliber. We understand all that. It's still terrific performance. And finally, uh, Nick, Doug Dennis also looked at some young players coming out of spring training, and one of the names he spotted was Vic Black of the Mets because Vic Black was one of those guys who was everybody's darling. Vic Black was one of the sexy names going into spring training because he was going to back up a supposedly shaky Bobby Parnell. Vic Black in spring training had eight strikeouts and nine walks and eight in his pitch and got himself sent back to the minor leagues. For, for a guy like Vic Black, spring training stats are clearly meaningful because that's what got him sent down, his inability to get the ball over the plate. And so Doug talks about that entire Mets bullpen in his article and looks at who, who may be, in fact, behind Bobby Parnell. And in a sense, it was sort of prophetic. I mean, when Doug wrote the article, Black had not been sent down, and also the Mets had got, not gone out to get Jose Valverde as a kind of a, a backup plan to Bobby Parnell. So what this looks like at this the moment, from my point of view, is Bobby Parnell's job looks a, a little bit safer, uh, and uh, certainly the guy behind him likely now is, is Jose Valverde, who at this point we have to say is a little bit shaky. <laughs> Yeah, a little bit. Um, from your lips to God's ear, Nick, I drafted Bobby Parnell in Tout Wars uh, as part of my three-closer strategy. I wanted to get three solidish closers without spending an arm and a leg, and I got them for about 11 bucks each, which seemed like a pretty good price. So I'm kind of counting on Bobby Parnell, and I was worried about Victor Black, but maybe I don't have so much to worry about. Well, not at this point. He's got to find. He's got to get the ball over the plate before anybody's going to trust him in, uh, in late innings, certainly. And nothing uh, causes more headaches, I think, for a manager than a, uh, a late-in reliever who can't find the plate. <laughs> Absolutely right. Nick, thanks very much for talking with us this morning. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. How you doing? It's been a hectic week. Has it ever? Yeah, it's the height of draft season. Everybody's getting prepared or doing their drafts. I know I had one last weekend. I'll have another one this weekend. Very exciting time, but very nerve-wracking as the major league teams come down to their final decisions about roster spots. And uh, nowhere perhaps more confusing and up in the air than the Texas rotation. I know you reported about it in uh, some Playing Time Tomorrow columns and Rod Truesdell at BaseballHQ.com in the Playing Time Today columns. Looks like Robbie Ross and Tanner Shepherds are into the rotation with Alexi Ogando on the outside looking in. What's going on here? You know, I don't think they're paying Rob, Rod Truesdell enough money because this situation is in flux almost every hour. If you'd have told us that 
Texas was going to start with a rotation of Martin Perez, Tanner Shepers, Joe Saunders, Robbie Ross, and Nick Martinez at the beginning of the year, you would have had some takers on that bet. But they've had a lot of injuries. They have you Darvish out for at least one start. Nobody quite seems to be sure what's going on with him and his neck. They hope he doesn't miss a lot of time. You've got Colby Lewis and Matt Harrison needing time in the minors. Although Lewis looked good the other day. He blanked Seattle for, for five innings. They still think he he's, needs a few start. And then the insertions of Tanner Shepers and Robbie Ross in the rotation, which, given that they were expected to be in the bullpen, is, uh, is interesting to say the least. How come Ogando is on the outside looking into the rotation? He has some experience on the uh, starting side of things. Ogando has been completely ineffective in spring training. Um, he's always been an injury risk. Um, Obviously, they don't have any confidence in him. He hasn't done well this March, and uh, clearly they're going to try to get the best out of him in the rotation. They think uh, that uh, Shepherds and Ross will hold up better, at least in the short term, while they're waiting for their main starters to come back. One of the big advantages of being a BaseballHQ.com subscribers is that our playing time estimates and value estimates are updated uh, very regularly, especially at this time of year. So how do Robbie Ross, Tanner Shepherds, and Nick Martinez look as guys for this year as far as the projections are concerned? Well, even the best projections I don't think can figure out this situation because it's really hard to say how long Ross is going to be in that rotation with uh, with both Lewis and Harrison down in the minors and expected back soon. But right now we have him projected for 87 innings. Obviously, um, at least two or three of these starts are going to be uh, uh, in the rotation. And he's got a 3.41 ERA, so that's looking pretty good. The question is, is, is how this all really pans out. I mean, if, if Ross pitches well in the rotation, obviously he could stay there. Could Shepherds? Could Martinez? Uh, are they are they pretty much guaranteed to be back in the bullpen once the uh, thing starts settling out? I'm not sure. I mean, there's a lot of people talking about how Shepherds could be a good starter. He's got a good swing and miss rate. Um, he strikes out a lot of hitters. My take is that they will try to move Shepherds back into the uh, into the bullpen, primarily because the two setup man for for closer Joaquin Soria right now are in fact Ogando and, and Neil Cotts. And while I like Neil Cotts from the left-hand side, I don't have a lot of trust in Ogando right now. Staying in the Lone Star State, Jock, uh, your playing time today, Colin, looked at the Houston rotation. Lucas Harrell appears to be uh, on the inside, and Brad Peacock is out. But maybe Brad Peacock could be a bargain because of this. Yeah, that's a real strange situation, because if you look at what Brad Peacock did uh, in August and September of last year, he was arguably the Astros' best starter. Uh, second half, he put up a 3.64 ERA with a 3.79 expected ERA. He struck out almost nine hitters a game over his last nine starts, and his command was his his strikeouts to walks ratio, what we call command, was 2.7. He had a 92 BPV as a starter. And what was really strange about this decision is that Peacock pitched only three times in March. His, his first start on March 1st, he got hit around a little bit, gave up four runs. It was 15 innings before his next start, which was pretty good. He, he went four innings and gave up a run. And then he pitched an inning just the other day and didn't give up anything. Um, I'm not sure what they're doing here because I don't think I trust Harrelson in any kind of a rotation, be it an MLB rotation or a fantasy one. Staying with the Houston pitching situation, Mike Fultonavich is going to be sent down, but he looked pretty good in spring training. Stephen Nickran noted in his Starting Pitcher's Buyer's Guide column that uh, Fultonavich is one of those kids whose great spring augurs maybe good things down the road when he comes back. Stephen's a pretty sharp guy, Jock. What's he seeing here? 
Well, Fultonavich has always been a starter in the minors, and he's always had terrific stuff, really good dominance. His problem has been control, but what he's done in spring, which is which is kind of odd uh, facing major league hitters, is that he has uh, is uh, conquered that control at least in uh, in small in in small stretches. He has pitched ten innings in, in a real small sample, like I said in spring all of which have been two innings, um, and he's given up only one walk, which isn't quite uh, what we're used to seeing from, from Bolton Abich. Um, interestingly enough, most analysts have felt that uh, unless he could conquer his walk problems, he would be a, a, he was likely ticketed for the bullpen. Um, Houston sending him down to the minors. We'll see if they stretch him out. But this is a guy who, given his power stuff, depending on how he handles the walk issues, uh, for a team like Houston who needs both starting pitching and bullpen help in the worst way, he could be on speed dial. A lot of ground balls, too, which you also like when you have those high strikeout guys with lots of ground balls. And like you say, if he can keep the walks under control, this could be a guy definitely to keep an eye on. I don't know if I'd add him to my reserve list just yet, depending on how deep my reserve list was. But boy, uh, you got to keep your eye on this guy in case he gets a call up. You might want to be first on the on the line with the uh, free agent claim. That's for sure. Uh, moving on to Toronto, another rotation that was up in the air, and uh, the fifth starter spot goes to somebody who's uh, really had trouble with injuries over the last few years, Drew Hutchison. Yeah, um, Hutchinson uh, in a in a small sample has really been good this spring, and uh, and his history is really interesting. I, I like him a little bit as a flyer in here, although we obviously can't uh, can't rely on him. He struggled in his major league debt back in 2012, but it was just at the end of this time that his his elbow blew out and he needed Tommy John. So I don't know um, how much we can read into that. He also struggled immediately in his 2013 return last year at Double uh, A AA and Triple A, which was pretty much to be expected. But before all of this, he always had great control. He had good dominance, and now, in the, at least in spring training, his control is back. His velocity is in the mid is reportedly in the mid 90s, and he's and he's maintaining it uh, through four and five innings. And he has little competition in the um, in the Toronto rotation. His problem is going to be pitching in the AL East, but but this is a guy based on his past history before Tommy John and what he's doing now that could be a flyer. McGowan beat out some competitors that included J.A. Happ, uh, Todd Redmond, Esmo Rogers, Marcus Stroman, Ricky Romero, and Happ was injured, so it's not like he beat out uh, Jim Palmer or Mike Cuellar to make it into the uh, 69 Orioles rotation, and he's only got 30 major league games under his belt, 25 of them in relief. How confident are you that uh, Drew Hutchison could be worthwhile as a fantasy investment? Oh, I'm not confident. Um, um, Like I said, the one thing that I do like about him is he's always had great control. That's back, and that's usually the last thing that comes back after Tommy John surgery. I love the fact that his velocity is reportedly in the mid-90s again, and I like his opportunity. What he does with that remains to be seen. I wouldn't spend a lot of money on him. As of right now, BaseballHQ.com has him as a $3 player projected in 5x5, $2 in regular 4x4 rotisserie, with a 403 ERA and a 129 whip, an expected ERA actually below that, so there might be some room for improvement. Not a lot of strikeouts. Uh, definitely a guy that if you're looking at, it's got to be very, very late in the very, very deepest of drafts. Uh, finally, Jock, let's look at Detroit, the odds-on favorite to win the American League Central. And uh, they've had some trouble, not in pitching, but in their shortstop spot. They thought they had it all wrapped up with Jose Iglesias, who looked great last year. Now he turns out to have stress fractures in both shins. Boy, that must hurt. They picked up Andrew Romine from the Angels. I believe they've already sent him down because they traded to get Alex Gonzalez in a minor deal 
Who gets the playing time here at shortstop for Detroit, and is there any point in even paying attention? Well, I think Alex Gonzalez has to be the favorite to get the playing time due to his experience, but uh, what is he, 39, 40, or something like that right now, and uh, when was the last time he actually had a starting job? It's nobody you really want to look at from a fantasy standpoint. Um, I actually, and, and maybe this is my angel bias showing through, I like Romine a, a real little bit. He has a good glove. He, he might get you some stolen bases if he plays every day. But he, and he's oh, and he's gained some weight over the off season. He he had a pretty decent spring for the Angels. Um, but he's a career two fifty hitter and one hundred and fifty major league at bats. He doesn't have a lot of power. Um, until further notice, I would avoid the Detroit shortstop situation completely. If you find yourself absolutely stuck right now, BaseballH2.com is projecting Alex Gonzalez to get roughly 60% of the playing time with Andrew Romine, assuming he gets called back up around 30. And of course, a lot depends on how quickly Iglesias can come back. But from what Rick Wilton told us last week here on the show, it's not a real promising uh, set of circumstances for Jose Iglesias. Uh, Jock, thanks very much for catching us up, and we'll catch up with you again uh, next week. Sounds good, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he writes regularly for the site as well. He's also our man here on the American League Beat at Baseball HQ Radio. Our regular Friday Talk with Todd is coming up. Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Ray Murphy, Co-General Manager of Baseball HQ, with this week's special offer exclusively for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. If you can't get enough of the great analysis from Patrick and the rest of the gang on Baseball HQ Radio, you're ready for a subscription to BaseballHQ.com. The insights you get on this podcast are just the tip of the iceberg. Come see everything else we have to offer, now at a special rate for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. Use the code RADIO5, that's R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to take $5 off a draft prep or full season subscription to Baseball HQ. Give yourself everything you need to dominate your league in 2014. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's the Friday News and Notes edition. I'm Patrick Davitt. You want to keep your eyes open this week at BaseballHQ.com for these features. Phil Hertz lays out his Tout Wars National League strategy in a rotisserie column. I lay out my own Tout Wars mixed auction experience, talking about the Murfino plan. And Dan Becker's Batting Buyer's Guide will take a look at Spring Breakers. That's all on the site now or coming up at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday Talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined once again by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, ESPN.com, FantasyAlarm.com, MastersBall.com, and others. Todd, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Patrick. Just before we get on with the regular part of the conversation, Todd, the last time we saw each other was on the weekend, last weekend in New York at Tout Wars, and I'm wondering if you saw any trends in the in the rooms that you were in the National League draft or in the rooms you were watching the American League and mixed drafts, did you see any big trend differences? And secondly, how did the on-base percentage move work for the National American League mono leagues? Right. I was in the National League, and I was the I moderated the chat for the American League, so I was able to, you know, be in be in the room for both those. The mixed, I was. Uh, man, I don't I don't think they could have fit me in the fishbowl in the mixed league, so I uh, I had to stay on the outside for that one. But anyway, the um, the OBP part, uh, what I found in both leagues was it was you know I air quote properly priced in. People did their homework. Uh, and, and, and adjusted values, whether it was intuitively or with a little black box, 
they adjusted their values accordingly and you know the, the high the better players the better will be players went for more money than they would have in a regular draft uh, and that it sort of trickled down I found it interesting at least in the NL draft that it really took took place with catching to the, the AL draft as well I think in both that there the catchers there are certain there are a lot of catchers that are improved in the OBP leagues and where often you can get discounted catchers there were no discounts on catchers at all in either league I intended to go into the draft with a uh, on-base percentage strategy where I was going to try to grab two or three of the better OBP guys. I ended up switching because of something uh, that Michael Salfino said. You know Michael, uh, he writes for the Wall Street Journal and uh, and, uh, Yahoo Sports, I think, and a couple of others. And we were having a conversation. He, I, and Ron Chandler were talking about how are we going to deal with this on-base percentage thing. And Salfino's approach was... Because on-base percentage is, is more tightly clumped around the median, you should just ignore it and not value it at all because you're going to end up in the middle of the pack anyway. You don't have to worry so much about taking a very, very low guy because they just don't exist. And, and uh, as a result, I went in and, and changed my strategy to get just one guy and then not worry about it from then on. And I actually wrote an article about it that's online now at Baseball HQ. The... Do you think that there's a merit in the argument that because on-base percentage tends to be more tightly clumped with fewer outliers that you can really afford to not worry about it as much in batting average where you can get killed by a couple of bad guys? I think you have to we sort of have to clarify Mike's point a bit and I think the standings in a row, in a league are going to be more bunched but the players are actually top to bottom there's actually more disparity more disparity in OBP top to bottom if you just look at the player pool. But the standings in the league, I think, are what end up to be more bunched. So I kind of, what I sort of in that regard was getting one of the top players would have really helped because the standings are so bunched and you could end up at the top of the standings. But I wasn't going to overpay for it, you know, air quotes again, because, you know, overpay is all relative. Instead, what I was going to sort of, along the way, uh, sort of a tie goes to the on base guy. For instance, in the end game, I could have had my choice of any of maybe eight or nine different outfielders at a discount. I made a point of getting Carlos Quentin as one, feeling that little difference alone. I know he doesn't play as much, but that little difference alone, if I'm in the middle of the pack, could jump me up three places in batting average, it may have jumped me up only one or two. So I sort of had the same thought in mind, but maybe not as aggressively targeting the the OBP to, to try to finish up at the top of the bunch. Huh, that's interesting because when I when he said that I went back and looked at my stats and it looked like there was more guys bunched around the median in on base percentage than there were bunched around the median in batting average and that the shape of the batting average in the player pool was a little more dispersed and now here you're saying that the opposite is true. That's interesting. Well I think I think I think we're both right. Around the median it's more bunched, but I just think that I found anyway, and maybe I didn't look at it, you know, I, there were more outliers, extreme outliers in OBP than extreme outliers in batting average. So, but the but I think the reason why the standings themselves are more bunched is because the vast majority of players are indeed uh, more bunched around because, you know, there's less variability with walk rate than there, there is with BABIP. So I think, you know, around the mean anyway, OBP was much more bunched. It just, to me, anyway, the outliers were even. 
bigger outlier, the the 440 Joey Votto's and the 450, 430 Miguel Cabrera's, their OBPs were more of an outlier relative to OBP than you know that than their than their than their batting averages were. I see what you're saying. Yeah, there's. When I looked at it, and I looked at it very quickly, it seemed to me that there were were more outliers in in batting average, but not as many extreme outliers as there are on base percentage. And it all worked out pretty well uh, in in thinking about it. And that's one of the advantages, I think, of the on base percentage shift in Tout Wars is it makes everybody rethink a lot of their assumptions about how the player pool is shaping up. And I, I know at FantasyAlarm.com, you've got an article coming out. That kind of looks at that, that sometimes the industry does a poor job, in your opinion, of keeping up with changes in the player pool, changes in how the games are played, and so forth. Yeah, this is you know sort of my niche, so I, I struggle with this, and you know, am, I, am, am I being too cute? Am I trying to be the smartest guy in the room, or is there something to this? And that I, you know, I think along the way, we can go back you know, the past you know, several years, and there's always something to me that you know, I hear the advice on the radio, and I read it. And it's always say, you know, that that was great five years ago. It's just no longer the case. Take a look at it. Take a look at the player pool. There's there's there it's no longer scarcity no longer exists. You know, five years ago, sure, we had to, or or take a look at the pool. You know, you can you can no longer wait and get your starting pitching, you know, James I like to use, you know, James Shields in the fifteenth round. You can no longer do that. Uh, you know, that was five years ago. So I you know, I, I always try to take a look at things and figure out you know, maybe it's the maybe it's the Billy Bean version of trying to find the deficiency. If 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 the fellow information disseminators are giving out wrong or or just you know advice that isn't correct or, or just doesn't make sense, maybe that's what a deficiency is. Is if you're using player you know player pool data that is correct, maybe that's how you can you know can get some uh, can gain some advantages. I guess presently, I don't know. I think there's a couple things out there that are that we're still lagging behind. One of them I know you think is closers that a lot of uh, touts and and fantasy baseball sites are mishandling how they think about closers because the role of the closer has really changed and the impact of the closers has really changed over the last few years. Never, you know, don't pay for saves. Don't pay for saves. That's you know that's what we, you know, we've been hearing for years and for I think the longest time it it made some sense because of the market the market for the saves. You were able to get, you know, if you you know bang for the buck, you could wait on your closer or 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 troll for them, speculate them for them in reserves, and still be okay in the category. But if you take a look at the at the present uh, inventory of closers, I think it's the same at the bottom end. And I think this is as you know economics with Major League Baseball. It's sort of the only position where you have to really think about this. You know, good te- bad teams don't need good closers, so there usually aren't very good closers on the on the poor teams but they still generate saves uh we know that uh but i think the upper end there's just more lights out closers than there have been in years past uh there's always been you know even mariano rivera was always the best closer but fantasy wise he didn't get the strikeouts nor the innings to 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 have that much fantasy value now with you with 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 kimbrell and jansen and a healthy chapman and greg holland and I think David Robertson and Trevor Rosenthal are on the verge of coming into that group, and Greg Holland came into it last year. These guys, with their with their 90 to 100 strikeouts and their ratios, just whips either below or right near one, and their the ERA is two five or below. 
they impact your, your team's ratios, your ERA, and your whip more than people realize. I think that, you know, saves are saves. You, you, you expect 35 saves from a closer, and, you know, you get a closer, and, you know, whatever happens, happens. But that's no longer the case. Uh, the 35 saves are, sure, they're, they're, you know, common amongst all the closers. But you're not paying for saves anymore from a closer. You're paying for the ancillary impact as well. And I think that's why the mistake of waiting or speculating or trying to pick up guys, trying to figure out who's going to close in Houston and getting all three of them. And, you know, there's a reason why there's three guys and not one. You're going to get those bad ratios along the way. And with pitching itself, similar uh, to on base being more bunched, with pit, pit, top to bottom pitching numbers are more bunched. So these these high ratio, uh, the good ratio closers have even more of an influence than they did before. It's a really interesting perspective to take that if you expect that you're going to get 30 saves regardless of what closer you get, assuming he's a regular and not a member of a committee or in some really volatile situation like they've just announced in Houston that nobody's got the role and frankly <laughs> that's someplace you want to stay away from. But other than that, if you get a decent closer who's pretty well established on his team, you can pretty much count on your 30 saves. And if you get two of them, you can count on your 60, at which point there be there's a deflection from – Closers who contribute in just that way versus those who contribute in all the ways. And that difference maybe is being undervalued. Maybe that's a market inefficiency. Right. You know, sort of going back to the to the tout and labor, I'm sorry, the tout AL and NL auctions, the uh, the going rate for just, you know, the run-of-the-mill, you know, closer is a closer type of guy was 16 to $18. So, I, you know, you're paying, to me, you're paying 16 to $18 for 30 to 35 saves. And those are the closers that, you know, don't hurt, don't help your ratios, you're fine. If you went over 18, then now you're getting into helping your other categories, your 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 whip and your ERA and your and and, and even strikeouts. And if you waited and, and you got the Tommy Hunters for $10 and and you know, Nate Jones for $10, those sort of guys, you you weren't you weren't maybe you weren't getting the full 35 saves, or you may be putting your ratios in jeopardy. Depending on both Hunter and Jones, they don't. You know, we don't know that they have the job. You know, Lindstrom could sneak in there, but Norris can sneak into Baltimore. We're just not sure. So you know, 18 saves is is Jason Grilly is 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 Grant. 18 dollars. I'm sorry, is Jason Grilly is Grant Balfour is just your standard run of the mill. Don't hurt, but don't help in ratios. Get you 35 saves type of closers. And I think that the money that you pay above that is what's undervalued, is what the market isn't pricing properly. The extra five or six bucks to get Greg Holland, he's actually earning you nine or ten or eleven more. And I think that's not I think that's where the inefficiency is in the pricing. Do you see right now or can you see developing over the next uh, few years any other situations where there are sources of unrecognized value. I'm thinking of something like platoon batters. As the game shifts more and more towards more and more transaction frequency, that's where the Nate Shareholtzes and the Matt Joyces and the David Murphys come into play, where you can game their platoon splits more effectively. Kristen Orfia on the other end. Uh, sort of the other righty lefty sort of thing. So yeah, as as you, the daily moves and even even you know the NFBC for instance allows you to switch batters out on Friday, so you have two moves, so you can 
you know, if, if one of their marginal outfielders has more or fewer games against a southpaw that weekend, you can get an extra game or, or get him better numbers because he's better against that handed pitcher or whatever. But, you know, there's a lot of, lot of players now in, in daily moves, and that's where those players can really, you know, take advantage. And that, you know, throw the projection out the window because all you care about is their at-bats versus the opposite-handed pitcher. To me, it takes away from some of the fun of it back in, you know, in, in February and March when you're trying to figure out how these players are going to do. If you're only going to play them, you know, when they're at their strongest, then, you know, to me, it takes away some of it. But if that's what makes the game popular, then, you know, it keeps me in business, which is fine. I was thinking when I mentioned uh, platoon players, you remember back in the 80s when Earl Weaver was running uh, the Baltimore Orioles, he had a, a, a platoon in left field, and I think uh, John Lowenstein was one half of it, and I can't remember the name of the other guy. And between them, when you added them up, they were like a 315 hitter with 40-some home runs and 140 RBIs, you know, just a tremendous production from the slot rather than tremendous production necessarily from either guy because they only played part-time. And I I remember thinking when I reread that, that could there be an opportunity in fantasy to say, look, instead of getting a $12 outfielder and a $1 outfielder and uh, the $12 guy being a full-time guy and the $1 guy being a part-time guy, would you be better off getting seven and six on two platoon guys and getting the production of one guy? Do you know what I mean? That because of the platoon advantage, if it's played right, you could really uh, you could really score by having guys on your roster who don't play when they're not doing when they're not going to do well. Right. I, I mean, first, so you, so you can sleep at night. It was Gary Renicky that was his platoon partner. Right. So you don't have to lie awake. Although that's what that's what the internet's for. I can see that. But if we factor in the the fact that they are in platoons into their expectations, then you know then convert that to our ranking. It's sort of already built in. Uh, so I can I can I can see where it's going. And depending upon the particular player, does he might he play more? Might he play less? Uh, I can sort of see it for a guy like 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 Ryan Howard. We're not right sure right now if he's going to be playing against lefties or not. So it's him yeah, sort of hedging playing time a bit. But if if the, if he gets the playing time I'm giving him, but they're only against lefties or only against righties, he's going to do better than than my numbers suggest. So I, I can see how that may how that may come out. And with the way the game's going, with the more the data that's being collected, you know, front offices could be more cognizant of that sort of thing, and it could be a way for them to save money too, because they may be able to the 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 the, the salary they pay for platoon A and platoon B to make one position maybe less than they had to pay for a superstar to, to, to make those numbers. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point about when the, the fantasy industry needs to keep its eyes open and its mind open about what's going on in Major League Baseball because I think we might be coming to a time when teams start realizing, you know what, old Earl Weaver, he was pretty smart after all, and just for the reason you just mentioned, that it makes more sense to invest $3 million a apiece in two productive platoon guys than try to chase after somebody who can hit both sides and paying $13 million. And maybe at some point we're going to start seeing teams realizing they might be better off with more bench hitters and more uh, variability and choice among hitters and less among pitchers. Drop your two worst pitchers, bump up your effective relievers to 100 innings a year from 70, 
and and add two bats to the bench. And when that happens, there's going to be all kinds of new sources of value. And I wonder how quickly the fantasy business is going to pick up on that and make recommendations based on that shift in thinking at the major league level. Well, if they listen to this podcast, they will. <laughs> yeah. We'll be on top of it. Don't, don't you think there's a possibility there that there's going to be somebody like Joe Madden and the guys down in Tampa who are looking for that edge all of a sudden realize, why are we carrying 13 pitchers when three of them are throwing 70 lousy innings? I do think that that's the way it's going, that you know the new guard is sort of fleshing out the old guard as far as baseball goes, and we're seeing it in front offices. We go to some of these sabermetric conferences, and we're always congratulating somebody on their new position within this organization. So as that keeps going and as, as the, the data collection keeps improving, I think that, yeah, we are going to see that's what we're going that, that ha- It is what we're going to see. And I think, you know, I think you sort of hinted at it. So it would, there always has to be something has to give. And what, what gives is the pitching. And if you need to open up that extra roster spot, that's where you're sort of going to have to play. Do you just dedicate a guy that just, you know what, your numbers are going to be terrible. Uh, you're our mop-up guy. You know, we're, we're going to give you a few extra bucks in, you know, because you're not going to get it due to the numbers. You're going to get it because you're doing us a favor by just absorbing all this, you know, all these bad numbers. You're never going to take these numbers to arbitration. So I think they're, ha- you know, a give and take about that, and that would be the place that would have to give would be pitching. Yeah, and I, I can't see it not happening because sooner or later some general manager or some field manager is going to look at his roster and he's going to say, I got this Greg Holland guy, and he strikes out 13 guys per nine innings. Why are we only pitching him 70 innings a year? Why aren't we pitching him 110 innings a year like the like Mike Marshall used to pitch for the Dodgers back in the day? It seems obvious unless there's an injury risk management kind of scenario where you're saying we don't want to have guys pitch that much, but it doesn't seem like that much when you break it down on a week-to-week basis. Surely a guy could pitch five outs instead of three at the end of a game or at some point during a game, and those kind of adjustments. And the, the smart general manager, at some point, it just seems clear to me that they're going to say, I'd rather have my Greg Holland out there for 100 innings and my... uh, the next guy in the Kansas City bullpen in there for 100 innings instead of three guys going out there for 70 innings and the third guy being lousy. Right, and I think the way that happens is I think you start in the minor leagues and I think you get the foresight to, you know, you just can't snap the fingers and, and say, you know, Greg Holland. Although they try, uh, they were going to do that with a roll this before his injury this year. They were talking about using him for more innings. But you start grooming them younger. You start, well, you know, as they're younger, you start stretching them out, not to be starters, but you, you start stretching them out for 100 innings. And I think that's, I think you can do. And I think some of that might have to do too with, you know, I don't think you could do that with a, with a Sergio Romo who's throwing all the sliders. You need to have the right pitcher that the extra innings, you know, the, 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 the torque on the pitches that he throws right. aren't as stressful as, as, as some of these other pitches might be. So it takes a particular pitcher. But I think they're out there. I think they're for sure out there that you could, that you could do that or even teach, you know, teach some of these closers a, a non-stressful pitches. In, in, it's two innings. You don't need to use it all the time. But just have that change up in your pocket that, that the guys are at least fearful it may, it, you, it may come. So I think, yeah, I think that's going to happen. And, and the really smart manager would start that younger and, and would start, you know, stretch them out a little younger so that they're ready by the major league level to throw triple-digit innings. 
And of course, a lot of them might not need to be stretched out. Most of them are starters at some point who move to the bullpen when they can't get guys out for six or seven innings but are pretty dominant over two or three. So it might just be a question of uh, keeping them in their, in their minor league careers for 100 innings a year rather than moving them all the way back to 65 or 70. Uh, Todd, I know you're in Las Vegas this week. Uh, what, what's going on in Las Vegas for you? For me, it's the National Fantasy Baseball Championship, the NFBC. This is the big weekend for me anyway. Tomorrow, I will be doing the American League and National League only auctions. It's sort of a, a standalone league that they that they run. There's not many of us peers out there that that play the you know the the truest form of the game, but they they do hold the, these did on the Friday. They since day one have held you know the AL and the NL only auctions, and I say it every year. It's my favorite day of the year, doing these auctions back to back, and then on Saturday. I'll be competing with the masses for that big $125,000 carrot, uh, and I this year I'm also competing in a in a second private auction with a partner. So it's going to be a fairly busy weekend uh, weekend for me with three auctions in a in a draft. The auctions that you're going into the mono league auctions, national and American league, you've you've had some success in these. Yeah, I uh, I have a uh, little little humble brag coming. I've I've won the national league version of it the last three times I've played. I had to take a year off, a few years off, to deal with some family matters. But the last three times I've entered, I've won it, including last year. And I've cashed in the American League side of things uh, on a number of occasions as well. So this is uh, by, by, you know, the success I've had, you know, keeps me coming out here. Because, uh, you know, I uh, otherwise, otherwise couldn't, couldn't afford it. So I'm, you know, happy to be able to return again this year because I did well last year. All right, Tal, well, best of luck in those auctions. We'll be watching to see uh, after you're done, is it possible to see what kind of team you drafted? Are the, are the results open to the public to look at? There's usually enough of a call that, that people want to know. So at minimum, my teams will get posted on, my, on the Masters Ball Forum. Uh, I, may write, I may write a piece about it, although you know, there's nothing more boring than reading. You know, I'd rather, if I'm going to take some of my, my site's bandwidth, I'd rather talk strategy or something else and, and leave it for the message forum. But yeah, at minimum, I'll put them on the message forum. Fantastic. Good luck, Todd, and we'll talk to you again next week. Looking forward to it, Patrick. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, FantasyAlarm.com, MastersBall.com, and ESPN.com, and he appears every Friday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Master Notes is next. Stay where you are. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Here's Ray Murphy, General Manager of BaseballHQ.com. Don't have your full set of our 2014 books yet? Well, here is the offer you have been waiting for. There's still plenty of time to get the new season off on the right foot with our 2014 Baseball Forecaster or the just-released 2014 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Just use the code RADIO5, that's R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to take $5 off your order for either of these essential tools for the serious fantasy leader. And everyone who buys directly from us gets the electronic version of the book as well as the key charts and tables just to turbocharge your draft preparations. So remember, it's Radio 5, R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to get $5 off the baseball forecaster for 2014 or the minor league baseball analyst. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for Master Notes, a weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and with a look at a fortuitous blunder, here's BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler. Ostensibly, 
If you get an invite to an experts league, particularly labor or tout wars, you have to be at the top of your game. But every once in a while, one of the experts makes an egregious blunder, or at least it appears so. The most frequent mistake is bad budgeting, which often leads to bidding wars on marginal players. That's how a guy like Nick Punto goes for $19. <laughs> Might as well open with my historic 2007 misstep. Sometimes the error becomes a classic story. Back in 1996, Larry Labadini walked away from the draft table with a $9 pitching staff. That was more planned than blunder, but at the time we all thought he was out of his mind. He traded his way to a fourth-place finish. In 1998, I drafted Jose Lima, a 5-plus ERA pitcher, on purpose. The other owners thought I was nuts. In 2001, then-rookie Lar Michaels drew chuckles when he drafted three closers and catcher Chris Widger for his UT spot. Both Lar and I took our blunders to titles. In 2003, Mark Haverty announced that he was going to own Vladimir Guerrero at any cost, and then was bid up by Jonah Carey to $53. Haverty finished last and was never invited back. Then there was the blunder of leaving money on the table, the extreme of bad budgeting. A few dollars is no big deal. But probably the most notable instance was when Jonathan Mayo left $23 unspent in Labor AL in 2001. But he went on to win. That particular class of error is going to be put to the test this year. Scott Sweeney of Fantasy Baseball Sherpa had a massive, wait for it, $61 unspent with only one roster spot remaining in the Tout Wars Mixed League draft. He then bid it all on Brandon Beachy, a move that will allow him to reclaim the dollars for his in-season free agent acquisition budget. The other touts have characterized this endgame save as everything from bogus to brilliant, but everyone has concluded that there is still no way Scott can recover to contend. I think it's intriguing. You may recall the rules for the Rotisserie 500 game I developed a few years back. Among them is the setting of a single season-long $500 budget to pay for everything – active roster players, reserves, and in-season free agents. This gave owners the flexibility to spend as they saw fit. If they wanted to go deep at the draft, they could spend $300 or more for active players and leave less for in-season use. But they could also decide that in-season acquisitions are more important and a lot more dollars to post-draft players. That's what Scott has essentially done, and it is not an entirely bad idea in the right circumstances. For one thing, Research has shown that more than 60% of a team's eventual pitching stats will be acquired after the draft during the season. Yes, that's how much pitching turns over. That alone begs for minimizing your investment in pitchers at the draft table and the need for more resources later on. Although Scott's move was unintentional, he might consider that Tout Wars has a single $360 budget. We are forced to divide it up as 260 for the draft and 100 for free agents, but it is a $360 bank account nevertheless. And he decided to spend 199 at the draft, leaving 161 for in-season use. Can he leverage this in-season windfall to build a contender? Most observers don't think so, 
but I'm not as quick to conclude one way or the other. If there was any hope or any type of league where one would pull it off, it is in a mixed league. There is still a lot of talent in the free agent pool, and all it takes is for him to hit on a few undrafted gems to improve his team. But there's a very fine line between success and failure. His fab acquisitions have to be near perfect. He needs to identify the players with the greatest upside and bid enough to get them. Even with his deep budget, there is no guarantee that he can land any particular player since the fab system Tout Wars uses is a blind bidding process. But there could be impact players worth pursuing. Last year, remember that Jose Fernandez was an April free agent in most leagues. Will Myers and Yasiel Puig didn't arrive until a couple of months later. This year, maybe Byron Buxton or Mark Appel are the in-season call-ups that make a difference. Neither was rostered in this draft. In any case, it's going to be a tough road, but it will be interesting to watch. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler from BaseballHQ.com. I was in that draft with Scott Sweeney, and I'd just like to point out that there are a few projection systems that we looked at after the draft, and in none of them did Scott Sweeney finish last. Ron Chandler is the founder of BaseballHQ.com. You can get master notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes edition for March the 28th. Opening days just a few days away. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 20 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our regular Friday Talk with Todd correspondent was Todd Zola. And our Master Notes commentator was BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, check out BaseballHQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes to add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in four days with our Tuesday Tout Edition featuring Yahoo Sports fantasy writer Scott Pianowski. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.